How are we all doing? Good. Are you guys ready for a deep dive into the Word? Okay, well, let's begin with a word of prayer then. <clears throat> Almighty God, we ask that you would use this time to make yourself known to us as you have revealed yourself to us in your word, and that this would be a time of profit and growth for each one of us. In your name we pray, and by the power of your spirit we say this. Amen. Okay, <clears throat> so uh, before we start, I just want to say that uh, I thought four pages of notes were a little excessive last week, so I made it six this time. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I uh, yes, it is small print, and there's wide margin, or you know, very small margins, because I was trying to fit a lot in. And I'll just tell you all now, we're not going to cover every verse and point in these notes. What I wanted was for y'all to have something that you could take home and, and look over and, and use as a reference guide. So we're going to kind of bounce around the notes a bit, and I'll try to help uh, keep track of where we are. So uh, if it gets a little confusing, I'll just blanketly apologize once now, and y'all know I'm sorry about that. So, okay, so we are today talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, which is one of, or possibly the foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. This is what sets us apart from all other religions and any other sort of metaphysical worldview or non-metaphysical worldview. The fact that God is Trinity is what sets us apart. Everything that flows from that, the creation of the world, the cross, the second coming of Christ, our eternal state thereafter, all of that flows from the Trinity. So it's really, really kind of important that we understand this, and not just understand it, but understand it rightly. So it's a, it's a very, very challenging subject and one that we often just don't talk about because it's such a difficult thing to talk about. How can we, in our sinfulness and in our mortal nature, understand the infinite God? Can anyone here uh, rattle off the number pi to the thousandth digit for me? No. And that's just the number. I'm talking about the creator of numbers. So it's, it is not possible for us finite beings to fully understand who and what God is. However, thankfully, he has revealed himself to us in his word. And so through his word, we are able to know him rightly. However... In talking about the doctrine of the Trinity, it is <clears throat> appropriate to note that nowhere in the Bible does the word Trinity appear. 
We don't see that word appear in Christian language until about the year 200 when a Latin writer, the first significant Latin Christian writer, he was a Roman in North Africa, named Tertullian. And he wrote a work called Adversus Praxion. Against the, it was a, a long treatise against the Gnostics. And we'll talk about Gnostics a little later. I know Brandon mentioned them in the first service. We'll get to that, hopefully. But in that, he is articulating the biblical view of Christ. And in that articulation, he coins the word Trinitas in Latin. That is the first time we see the word Trinity. But the word being used for the first time does not mean that he is inventing the doctrine. He is trying to find a way to describe what the scope and breadth, the warp and woof of Scripture all reveals to us about who God is. Does that make sense? So, just because the Word isn't in the Bible doesn't mean what the Word means isn't in the Bible. The Word is a shorthand to say God in His entirety as He has revealed Himself throughout the entirety of Scripture. I think it is appropriate that there isn't just one verse that we can go to and say, here's the Trinity. Because God is the, the fullness of what he has revealed to us, both in his Son, in his Word, through, you know, illuminated through his Spirit, and through all of those things we see the, the breadth of who God is. So, let me ask just a couple of questions. I don't want answers. I mean, this is just to be thinking about in your mind as we begin to go through this. And that is, how can God be good? How can God be loving before he has created all things? Before John 1, in eternity past, when he is himself in eternity past, how can God be those things when those things require an object? Can God be love or be loving if there is nothing, can that be a part of who he is if there's nothing to love? To be good to something, require, to be good requires an object of the goodness. Otherwise, it is just nothing. I mean, it is amoral. It is neutral. So have that in the back of your mind because we're going to circle back to that towards the end. And, and uh, as we ask, why does it matter? So let us then begin our zip line through the Trinity. Uh, and let us, let, let's start with a, a, a proper definition of the Trinity. It's right there at the top of the page. God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. We are monotheists. We are not tritheists. We are not polytheists. We believe there is one God. But within God, he has revealed a threeness within himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Scripture affirms that they are one and that all three of them are fully God. So you'll note that, that diagram there. That's what's often called the shield of the Trinity. And <clears throat> as Brandon said in the first service, analogies don't work. All analogies, every analogy for the Trinity will eventually fall short on some level. So this is not an analogy. This is an attempt 
for us to be able to in some way visualize what is being said. The Son is not the Father. The Son is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. They are all distinct. But the Son is God. The Father is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And there is one God. There's not three circles in the middle. There's one circle in the middle. So you can always refer back to that. That's a handy, just a, a tool to help us to, uh, to visualize that. So I, de- I debated about where to start this process. Where do we go through, you know, to begin? And, and I, I debated, well, let's start with the theology and let's talk about why this matters. But I thought, then I, I changed course and, and ultimately I, uh, I decided to, let's start with the Bible and let's see what the Bible says. Let's take note of how God has revealed himself and then let's talk about why that matters. So, where do we begin? Let's begin in the beginning. So, we're going to talk about the Old Testament. I'm going to try to do this in about 10 minutes, maybe a little less. And then we're going to talk about the New Testament for maybe a little longer. And we'll move on from there. And uh, <clears throat> so, there are, the, the Old Testament is obviously before Christ, before the incarnation. You so you know, incarnation comes from the Latin word carne, is the Latin word for flesh. So it is, the incarnation is the taking of flesh by the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. So we just re- refer to the whole event of the coming of the Messiah as the incarnation. He has taken on human form. Okay. So, the Old Testament is prior to the revelation of God through the incarnation, through his son taking flesh. So we are, in in some ways, as Paul would say, looking through a glass darkly. They do not yet have a full revelation of who God is. It doesn't say Jesus. It doesn't say the Son of God. We do see the Spirit, though, the Spirit of God, and we'll talk about that in a moment. It just generally talks about God. However, there are, around the edges of that, there is a number of things that indicate to us that there is both God is one, there is a oneness, there is a diversity within that oneness, and there is only one God. So all of those three key points are not contra what is in the Old Testament. So let's begin to look at some of that. As Brandon mentioned, the word, well, hold on, before I get to what Brandon mentioned, there are three main words for God in the Old Testament. There is Elohim, Yahweh, and Adonai. So those are the, the three primary ways to which God has, God is, is referred to in the Old Testament. Elohim is plural. It literally means gods. Adonai is also plural and literally means lords. It doesn't say Adon, which is the singular form, it says Adonai. Not in, in every single instance, it says the plural form, lords. Also, in many of your Bibles, if you see the word Lord in all capitalized letters, in Hebrew, that is saying Yahweh. That is the name of God. Yahweh means I am. Just as when Moses was at the burning bush, as Brandon mentioned, God, you know, Moses says, what shall I call you? Well, keep in mind, we know who God is, but up to that point, 
Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had encountered God, but God never identified himself to them. And then in, through the 400 years of enslavement, as far as what's recorded in Scripture, there's no contact between the descendants of the patriarchs and God. So Moses is not sure who this guy is. So he says, what's your name? And God says, tell them the I am has sent you, that Yahweh has sent you. So that is the name of God. But is it tell him we have sent you? Like Elohim is plural? No, it's tell him I have sent you. So you have two plural names for God and one singular name for God, or two plural words for God and one singular word for God. The name of God is singular. So you have a diversity within you, the oneness of God. <clears throat> uh, in many accounts throughout the Old Testament, you see God saying, let us do this. And Brandon mentioned that again, uh, where we say, let us create, let us do this, let us go down and confuse their language at the Tower of Babel. So there is within the action of God, there is a plurality. It's not, why don't we all go down? It's let us, because they are still one God. There is a diversity within the oneness. And that is very interestingly pointed out in the numbers that are used for God. So, uh, Deuter Deuteronomy, uh, I'm blanking now, 6-4, the Shema. Did, did anyone know what the Shema is? It's the great summation of Judaism. Hear, O Israel, that the Lord is your God, the Lord is one. So when it says the Lord is one, the Hebrew word that's used there is echad, which in Hebrew you could sum up and say, as I say in the notes, it's like our national motto here in America, e pluribus unum, out of many, one. The word echad means like we are all one church, are we not? But are we all one pe persons? No, we are many people, but we are one body. So the word, we are a echad church. We are a composite unity. There is one thing made of many things. Does that make sense? There's another word for one in Hebrew. If you look down at the bottom of the page, it's not echad, it's, it is yahid. And that means a solitary oneness, a monad. So I give the example, one of the cases where that's used in Hebrew is referring to Isaac. He is Abraham's only son. Now, obviously, Abraham had Ishmael too, but as far as the, the sons that were promised to Abraham, did Isaac have a brother through Sarah? No, he is the only offspring of Abraham and Sarah. There is one Isaac. But when it talks about God, it's echad. It is the composite unity. So there is a diversity within that oneness. And this you see throughout the Old Testament. <clears throat> Second page. <clears throat> um, golly, how time flies. Okay, uh, skip down to point two on the second page. Um, with the diversity within the unity of God is expressed in several passages, and I'm giving just a few examples. Anytime I give examples in, this, in these notes, these are 
a selection of examples. These are not exhaustive selections, okay? I mean, this is, this is, none of this is exhaustive. I just picked five or six and ran with it. So, uh, so you can look through the list there. I, the one I want to pause on just for a minute, though, is Psalm 110, which Brandon is going to have a ball with in, what, five or six years, seven years, ten <laughs> I don't know how long. So, um, that's not a knock either. I mean, I think it's awesome that you're tackling the Psalms. So, uh, there's just so many months or weeks in summer, and there's a lot of Psalms, and this is 110. So, uh, but that one is is a really critical uh, Psalm where David is saying, uh, the Lord said to my Lord, so you have two different people being addressed as God by David in that passage. He's saying, the Lord said to my Lord, both God, but different. They are communicating to each other, so much so that this ver- this, this passage in Psalms, the way David is recognizing two divine persons, is referenced in the Synoptic Gospels. What are the Synoptic Gospels? Which books are they? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Okay, good job. So, um, Matthew, uh, well, I, I jotted it down, but I can't, I can't read my own handwriting. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke 20, 42, 44, Mark 12, uh, 36, 37, and I think it's Matthew 22, 43, 45, uh, is where Jesus uses this as a text to articulate the, 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 how the Messiah is God. Because people weren't expecting the Messiah to be God. So, but he's the, the second person of the Trinity. He's the Son of God. So the Messiah is God. And people weren't ready for that. And so David, so, but, but Jesus is saying, look, David got it. He saw, he saw that the Messiah who was being referred, who was being addressed by God in that psalm, that the Messiah is God. That the Lord said to my Lord. Does that make sense? Okay, moving on. Uh, also, section three, I pasted in twice. We'll get to that a little later. So, uh, to quote Dr. Emmett Brown, I apologize for the crudity of this. Um, that was a Back to the Future joke. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, okay, so jump down to, to B. I want to talk about the sun in the Old Testament. And I'm going to try to wrap up the Old Testament here in about five minutes. Um, the sun we see appearing in several different ways in the Old Testament. So sometimes you have him uh, appear as the word of the Lord. And you think about this, there's, there's many what we would call dabar acts. Dabar is a Hebrew word for, for, for word, like a spoken word. Uh, like, so one of the great dabar acts of God in the Old Testament would be in creation, where you have the Father present, God is there, the Spirit is hovering over the waters of the deep, and then how does God create? He dabars. He speaks. And, what do we, and Brandon talks about this in, in greater length than I'm, than I'm going to talk about it today. Um, but he, and, or did talk about it if you were in the first service. But you see that all things are made through the Son. Who is the agency of the creation in Genesis? It is the spoken word, the dabar. So you have the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh, is the second person of the Trinity, but we see it again 
in the wisdom of God, especially in Proverbs 8.22.31, that passage really mirrors the creation account in John and, and so on, where you, you see the wisdom of God is the, uh, is the agent of creation. Now, what does that mean, the wisdom of God? Well, that is not far off. It is closely akin to the concept of the Logos, which the Logos is in John. The beginning was the Word. That's the Logos, Word. The, in Greek, Logos can, refers, can ref, it's kind of a broad term that has a lot of metaphysical and epistem. I'm sorry, I'm going to be using big words today. I apologize. It's just the nature of this. Um, I'll try not to use those words, though. Um, what? I'm just, I'm just a head running around with my chicken cut off up here. Um, <laughs> yeah, sorry, I'm off track. Okay. Uh, which person of the Trinity took on human likeness? Jesus. He's the Son of God. He is... He is the wisdom, he is the, the knowledge, the blueprint of God. I mean, he, he is the blueprint for who we are. Who are we gradually being conformed to? Jesus. So he is, we are gradually being conformed to this knowledge of God, the wisdom of God. But, he's, but the, you see the wisdom of God operating as divine in the Old Testament. And then you get to the angel of the Lord, which is a really fascinating study in the Old Testament. And, man, I, okay, I'll let you read the notes. The last one I want to mention is the commander of the Lord's army. This is one of my favorite passages in Scripture, and it's in Joshua 5, 13 through 15. Israel has marched up to Jericho, and they're about to take the city, and Joshua goes out to reconnoiter around the city. And while he's out there, he meets a guy with a sword drawn. And he says, are you with us? Or Joshua says to him, are you with us or against us? And he says, the guy says, neither. I'm the commander of the army of Yahweh. And he says, we're going to take these guys out. And then he, sa- he tells, uh, how do we know this is God, though? Because he tells Joshua, Take off your sandals, for the ground you are standing on is holy. Where else do we see that? Yeah, who else was there with Moses? God. Do we see an angel telling people to, that the present, the ground that they are on is holy? No, this is God. This is, and who do we see leading the armies of God at the end of Revelation, like in Revelation 19? Jesus Christ. So here he is. And what's he doing? But he's about to lead his people into the fulfillment of promise, or at least the partial fulfillment of the promise. He is going to lead the army of God's people into the land that he has promised them. Who knocks down the walls? I mean, did the people knock down the walls of Jericho? No, God did. So it's a really fascinating little part of Joshua that I think often gets overlooked, but there's a lot of profound theology in the presence of Christ there at that time. So, I mean, we always talk about, I remember in Sunday school, you know, talking about the, them marching around the city seven times, and 
you know, and blowing their horns, and then the seventh time the walls come down, and not once did they say Jesus was there. So, I'll leave that and move on to uh, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Now, the word for spirit in the Old Testament is ruach. It means wind or breath. And who do we, how, do, how does God give life to Adam? He breathes into his nostrils. That's who is called the giver of life. The Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the giver of life throughout Scripture. And we see that a time and time again. And there's actually quite a few references to the, the Spirit. They don't call it the Holy Spirit, but in the Old Testament it's called the Spirit of God. And I'm going to let you look at a lot of those examples on your own. Because it is time to move on to the New Testament. Any questions before I do that? Is this making any sense? Is this helpful? I don't even know. Okay, good. Um, oh, so l as a transition to the New Testament then, let's look at the last point on the Holy Spirit, which is the first point on the third page, or the first little section. And it's uh, there's a number of references in the Old Testament, especially in Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Joel, Joel particularly being the most prominent, where it talks, where the prophets talk about the Spirit of God coming in acts of restoration and cleansing. And it's to this that in Acts 2, Peter preaches out of Joel 2 when, on the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit comes and the church is started and the Spirit is given for the first time to the new believers in Christ. Uh, but that act that the Spirit, the coming of the Spirit that day with the, with in, uh, in, in cleansingness and in fire uh, is, is prophesied in the Old Testament, and we see it in the New. So there, there's, there's a lot of sinew that connects uh, the end of the Old Testament with the beginning of the church in the New Testament. But that being said, let's move on then to... Uh, um, to the New Testament. And with the advent of Jesus Christ, we now have a much fuller revelation of who God is, of his nature, of his attributes, and of the relationship between the persons of the Trinity. So, going back to, you don't have to turn back to the first page, but just going back to that definition that I had on the first page, God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And each person is fully God, and there is one God. Now in the New Testament, with the advent of the Son in the flesh, in the incarnation, we really begin to see this fleshed out. Is that a question in the back? They're not, they shouldn't be, yeah, well, I mean, though, Yahweh is a name of God. To say breath is not a name of God. The Spirit. No, those are just translating the, they're, they're just translating the Hebrew. They don't always mean 
here's where we can go in the bog here. Uh, so I'll just say this briefly, and if you want to talk to me more about it, we can talk about it later. But I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. But the word El, which is singular in, in, for Hebrew in Old Testament, or Adon, which is singular for Lord in the Old Testament, they can refer to other things. Like El or Elohim just means God. But when they're talking about Baal in the Old Testament, we, I mean, if we talked about Allah, we still talk. We still say Allah was a a god, but it's little g God. You know, we're still using that word to refer to something that is not God, and it's the same thing in the Old Testament. So the words are not ex- Yahweh is exclusive to God. Elohim, Adonai are not exclusive to God, but usually refer to Him. But it's obvious from the context who is being addressed. Does that make sense? Okay. So I don't want to. Elohim and Ad- Yahweh is singular. Elohim and Adonai are both plural. Okay, moving on. Okay, so the way I tried to move through the New Testament revelation of God, of the Trinity is uh, I so my basic layout, and I tried to put these in in bold points there or bold text is a there is one god that the per- but they they all three persons are one god that they are distinct from one another and that they are all god i know it's kind of circular there but i d- i felt like there was a certain flow to it so i looked first at examples where we see uh father son and holy spirit all present so i think one of the most powerful is at the the baptism of Jesus. So here you have, and that's one of the few events that is in some way or another present in all four Gospels. So at the baptism, the inauguration of the work of the Messiah, which is, is an incredibly important event, you have the Father in heaven, you have the Son in the water, and you have the Spirit descending out of heaven down to the Son. And the Father said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. So here you have all three persons of the Trinity present in almost physical form. Not I'm not saying physical form for real, but I mean you have the Father who is in heaven. He's in the clouds at part and the light comes down. You have, and he's speaking. So there's a presence. To be speaking, you have to be present. You know, does that make sense? I mean, so there is a presence of the Father there. You have the Son in human flesh in the water and you have the Spirit descending like a dove. And that doesn't, I don't think that that means that the Spirit took the form of a dove. I think the Spirit looked like, like a flying flap of flame as it's coming down out of heaven and alighting on Christ. Just like there's flames above the people as they receive the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. It's, it's like it's the Shekinah glory coming down and, and alighting on the Son of God. So it's a tremendously powerful event. But, all three persons of the Trinity are there. And then throughout the, throughout the New Testament, you have this tripartite formula of <clears throat> the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So when, when, when the Great Commission is given, they are to baptize in whose name? In Yahweh's name? Well, yeah, in, yeah, in Yahweh, but G- Yahweh represented as how? Baptize in the name of the Father in the name of the Son, 
and in the name of the Holy Spirit. They're not saying in the name of the Father and in the name of the Holy Spirit and in the name of the Son. I'm sorry, I got it out of order. And in the name of John the Baptist and in the name of Moses. Because are those guys God? No. Who's God? The Father, the Son, the Spirit. That's whose name you baptize in. You baptize in the, in the name of God. But God is three persons. So, and again, you can look through uh, all those other references, and there are many, many more references. Oh, and it's important to note in the Old Test, in the New Testament. Good grief, am I all over the map? Um, when you see God or Theos, that usually is referring to the Father. When you see the Son, He is referred to as Lord, as Kurios. So, in there, there is a a a, a a, a distinction in vocabulary in the New Testament between Father and Son. God and Lord. Okay, but, but they, what does Thomas say? My Lord and my God. So they, they are both. Okay, um, moving on. And you'll note that a lot of these passages are going to be coming from John. As we said last week, John had a totally different agenda from the the authors of the synoptic gospels and he is called the theologian because he is literally studying theology means the study of god i mean and it can be theology like the study of all things pertaining to god or it can be literally like what we would call theology proper which is like the, the study that's really dialed in focusing on just studying the the divine being that is god not just everything else that is related to him. Uh, so, and, and, and that's, John is the theologian. Um, so, you can, uh, you can see the distinction in the persons of the Trinity in, in a lot of these passages. And because I don't have a lot of time, I'm not going to really dwell on those uh, yet. So, um, let's jump to the next page, the third page. And I would encourage you all to look those over. Uh, it's just, it's really fleshing out the Trinitarian formula that I use at the beginning. Um, <coughs> yes, the fourth page. Uh, okay. So, again, I, I don't like to gloss over that stuff, but we got to move on at some point. Um, but I really would hope you would look it over and, and read some of that. And, and go back to the verses and read the, read the Scripture passages so that it, 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 you let God speak for himself to you. Don't just take my notes. You know, Take God's word. It's it really the authority here. And not that anyone's saying my notes are authoritative. Um, <laughs> so anyone that's pasting things in twice should not be authoritative. So I defer... I defer to God. Um, how's that for backup? <laughs> okay, so why then, why, uh, oh my gosh. Let's skip to the fifth page. How about that? Um, yeah, okay. Why then does this matter? Why, and again, that the fourth page, the 
what I did on that page is I broke it down so that I looked at the individual attributes as they're described in Scripture of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So each of them have different characteristics. There's just not this one amorphous blob of God and this other amorphous blob of God and this third amorphous blob of God, and they're just out there being God, but they're all one. They each have characteristics. For I mean, think about this. To be the Father, what does that imply? It means you are giving life. You have, you are the source of things that you have, or you have a loving care for those that you have given life to. To be the Son, what, is, what does that mean? It means that you have been given life. Now, begotten is another, I mean, that's a whole other class to talk about what it means to be the only begotten son. And I just do not have time to address that today. I would love to address it again sometime because we could spend a couple weeks on that. Um, But trust me to say that Christ is eternal, but he is eternally begotten by the Father. And that that does mean something. So, (laughs) okay. But what does it mean? What what does what kind of attributes would you expect to, to see with a son? Well, I mean, what does Christ say in the garden before he goes to the cross? Not my will be done, but yours. I mean, he is he willingly and lovingly submits himself to the Father. So, and then you know, there, and then you can on that fourth page, I give a lot of characteristics of the Spirit. But it's like these the persons of God have attributes that are unique to them, but they are still one God. And it's a mystery how that works. And you know what? It's okay for it to be a mystery because we are finite and mortal and we cannot withstand the blaze of his holiness and cannot fully understand him at this time. But one day we will see him face to face and we will understand because he will then be revealed to us fully. So it's okay right now for it to be a mystery how this all fits together. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Because I think, honestly, that's the biggest hang-up for people a lot of the times. They just say, how can this be? How can this be? It's okay for it to be a mystery because God has revealed a multitude of things that still let us know who he is and that this is true and that he is who he says he is. So, why then does it matter? So let's look at that fifth page. It matters because without the Trinity, I'm speaking in very broad brushstrokes. I'm paraphrasing myself even. I mean, I'm trying to, it's the short, short version. Um, It matters because if God were not triune, the world would not have, the creation, it flows out of the triune nature of God. So, as I said before, at, when I asked the question, what does it mean for God to be good? What does it mean for God to be loving? Can the, he be those things in eternity past when God is solitary? No. If God had no creation, I'm not trying to veer into the- heresy here, so bear with me. But if he had no creation, who would, there, who would he be loving if he were not Trinity, if he were Allah, he was just a monad. Who would who who you know? And and in Islam, 
there's like 99 attributes of God that they say. And one of the attributes of, of Allah is that he is loving. But they are like, they are hyper monad. Like God is a monad, which means he's one single entity and there's, he is like the Isaac of God. I mean, there's, there's only one Allah. And before Allah made the world, who, if he is loving, who is he loving? if there is nothing but him. What kind, is that the kind of God that we want? No. But you can't love yourself per se because really to love is to have an object of love. And we can say, and what, is, what does John say in, in 1 John? He says God is love. Well, God is love. I mean, what does that mean? Well, he is love because he is three persons in an eternally loving relationship within himself. He is not just God. He is the Father loving the Son. He is the Spirit loving the Father. He is the Father loving the Spirit. He is the Spirit loving, I mean, the Son. You know what I mean. I, I, I got myself confused there. But you know what I mean. <laughs> but there is this loving relationship with Go ahead. Sorry. I sure. Let me I'm actually going to go there in just a moment. So, we're let me let me let me build up to that at least in what time I have. So, and if I don't remind me. Okay. Um sorry, this stool has just about killed me. Uh, where was I? Um, so yes, there is an e- God exists in an eternally loving relationship within himself. Not just loving himself like he is obsessed with himself, but he, the persons that he, who he is love one another. And you see that many times if you go back to that fourth page, I give a lot of, there, there's several texts there where it talks about the Father loving the Son, and, and the Son loving us as the Father loves Him, and He loves the Father, and, and so on. So God has this infinite amount of love that exists eternally within Himself and within the persons of who He is, and it is entirely fitting within that, within the attributes that are revealed in that, that God would create the world so that He could share that love that exists eternally within Himself. And it is because of the fall. What happened at the fall? Well, we decided to be like God. Can we be like God? No. Are you, are you, that was my daughter. Um, um, <laughs> so is anyone familiar with the great I wills in Isaiah 14? So that that is being... Ref- it, it, the king of Babylon is being addressed, but it becomes a typology for Satan himself. And, and it gives five reasons why, uh, why he was cast down. And, and this is seen as, as a glimpse into the eternal the, the rebellion in heaven when Satan rebelled against God. And so he, it gives these five I wills where Satan is saying, or the king of Babylon is saying, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. And the last one, 
And they're all, in effect, usurping God and his role. And the last one is, I will be like the Most High. And what happens in the garden? What does the, sa- what does the serpent promise will happen if they eat the fruit? You will be like who? You will be like God. And we were created, Adam and Eve were created, to be in this loving relationship with God, to be sharing in the eternal love that exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. We were created to share in that because God is so immense and infinite and eternal that the love that exists within Him is overflowing out of Him, and He wants, he, he wants to share that with us. And so He made the world to share that with Him us and yet we sin we wanted to be like god every day of you know that we when we sin we're saying i am my own god i'm going to do what i want and you think about what christ and here's where we're going back to what you what you were asking about what christ said were the two greatest commandments to love the lord your god with all your heart mind and soul and to love your neighbor as yourself those two things, if followed, and there's the, they are the summary of the Old Testament law, so there's a lot that is poured into those two things, but those two things are restoring that loving relationship. If we do those things, we are, and by God's grace, facilitating our, our restoration of that loving relationship that he had. So when I say, when he says love... When, when it says to, that as we would love ourselves, or you know, when we love ourselves, that's us saying we we want to be like God, because really the object of our love should be others, not and God and others. That, I don't know if that makes sense, and if it doesn't, it's okay because I'm probably explaining it very inadequately. So. Absolutely, and, and well, we're going to get to that here in the end, maybe. Um, so God, God made the world to share with us. I mean, to so that we can share in the the loving relationship of who He is within Himself, and we we are able to participate in that. He says, uh, you know, Jesus says, you know, that He will be in us as as the Father is in Him. Or something like that. I can't. I'm just kind of so discombobulated right now. I can't get it right, and I apologize. And I'm not trying to commit heresy, but um, <laughs> um, thank you. I appreciate the grace. I truly do. Um, it is. It it it, it is. But in this sense. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of nuance that goes into that, but um, well, it, yeah, what it is, it's the Greek verb agapao, which is like an an intimate and sacrificial love that God that that's that's the word that is the the nuance of the Greek word for love that is used in the New Testament. So, okay, so let's let. My goodness, where does the time fly? Can I have another hour? 
Um, <clears throat> yeah, I know. Well, I didn't plan to talk, speak every word on all these pages. Um, so let's look then at section B. Because God being trying, these are just examples of why it matters. This is not the totality of why it matters, okay? So I hope you understand. I'm just trying to give a couple of examples as to why this is important, critically important. But another very important reason why this is important, I said that twice, is because what we would call the economy of salvation works because God is trying. If Christ is not God, then the sacrifice that is made is not sufficient to cover the sins of, the, of all of humanity throughout history. So there needs to be, to, sac- to, to satisfy God's demand for justice, there needs to be an eternal sacrifice, something that is sufficient. But it must be us that is dying for that. So God provided himself. You know, Christ coming and taking flesh is him acting out. The at, I mean, that's such a, a, a weak word. He is, he is living the attributes that he has as the Son. He is obedient to the Father. And he comes and he does what he does. But, man, again, so weak. He, he, he saves us all on the cross. But his sacrifice is sufficient because he is God. Okay? We're going to, for, for like two minutes at the end here, we're going to talk about some deviations from this. But let's just say Christ is not God. Let's say he's the first created thing of all creation, and that all other things were created through him. I know it's crazy, but we'll get to that. Is that then an eternal sacrifice? No, it's not eternal. So the sacrifice to satisfy God's judgment must be sufficient. It must be eternal. And only the Son of God can make that atonement. So God demands justice, but... In his grace and in his love, he, he supplies it for us. But all of that is coming from within himself. He is, he is satisfying all things on our behalf from within himself. He is not demanding, or he is demanding it from us, but Christ supplies it. But that in Christ doing that, God has supplied the justice that he demands. So, and I know that that is a really inadequate uh, explication of that, but I'm sorry, my words fail me. So, let me just move on to the last little section there and say that uh, in another reason why the Trinity is important, again, these three are not the only reason, they're just three that I picked, because it's just kind of beginning, middle, and end in a way, is we are, we're made in God's image. We are meant to be we are creatures meant to be in community. Marriage of, of, you know, is a composite unity where you have one out of diverse parts. That is a reflection of God. The church is a reflection of God where we, have, we are all made one 
we are there is a oneness out of diverse parts and in the, the body of Christ is the bride and it will be made one with God but all of these are reflecting that and the spirit is is in, you know present amongst us and is present now spirit please give me better words right now um, so it uh, it all ties together so I have like three minutes left, and I, I know that that last page really got short tripped, and I, I do apologize for that. But I want to talk about um, where you, what happens when you go wrong in this. And uh, <clears throat> so almost every major departure from Christianity, heresy and everything, is either a rejection of the Trinity, which most of them are, or a rejection of the, and this is what we're going to talk about next week, is the fully man and fully divine natures of Christ. So the fully human, fully divine nature of Christ, that's what we're going to talk about next week. But every, every, every deviation from the church throughout the last 2,000 years has been a rejection of one of those two things. So I, I included on here a list of a variety of, of early church heresies where people taught what is contra in Scripture. And, and as you look at each of those, you begin to see where things fall short. So, adoptionism. God was just uh, a man who, because he was so holy, he was adopted by God and uh, became the Son of God, but then he is not God, is he? No. Um, Apollinarian, you, you can read that. The one, there's two that I want to focus on. Though. Three, Arianism taught that Christ was the first thing that God created and that all things were then created through him. This was a major threat to the church and almost for about 80 years almost overtook the church as the, as the, the doctrine of the church. But it was beat back and it's a great story how that happened, how God really... A lot of great saints, especially Athanasius, really persevered to uh, maintain the church's uh, true understanding of who God is. However, the Arians, and this has nothing to do with Arians like in Europe. This is named after the guy who started it, whose name was Arius. Uh, they have a modern-day manifestation. Because what Arius taught around the year 300 is what Jehovah's Witnesses teach today. And as Solomon said, there is nothing new under the sun. So, another one uh, is Gnosticism, which comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means, excuse me, which means knowledge. <clears throat> and they taught all sorts of crazy stuff, but they basically teach that the physical world is bad, that only the spirit is good, and that Christ, in taking on human form, was corrupted, and that it was his pure spirit form that is where he was. And they don't even teach that there's a God even, really. They just call it the Pleroma, and it's another story. But I bring up Gnosticism because, again, here in Mount Shasta, all those buildings or stores downtown that have purple uh, or crystals, most of what they teach is a modern manifestation of Gnosticism. So they're not that far off from what was going on in the early church. Uh, and that wasn't necessarily in the church, but they were trying to invade the church, and it was, again, beat back. Like, First John is believed to have been written as a rebuttal of Gnosticism. Um, 
the last one I want to talk about really quick is modalism. And Brandon mentioned this and we'll mention it again. But I have found that a lot of people not having had sound teaching, which certainly I did not live up to today, uh, on the Trinity, um, often sort of default to modalism as their understanding of God. And, uh, and, and what that is, is it, it's teaching that God takes on modes of activity, that he, he is the Father up in heaven, he's the Son when he comes down to earth, he's the Spirit when he goes to indwell us, but you know, it's all one God, there are, but there are no, there's no distinction between the persons, that they're all just modes of activity of one God. So you can go look through that list, and I'll give another list next week of uh, a few more heresies that, that relate to the, uh, the person of Christ himself. Um, and then at the very end, I have just a list of theological terms that we use to describe uh, God. I just thought that may be helpful. So I am done. I mean, I'm out of time. I'm never done. Um, but uh, thank you for your patience today. I, this is just a really big topic to try to distill down to an hour. And honestly, I was really, really uh, intimidated by trying to take something on for 55 minutes that is really eternal in nature. Um, so thank you for your patience. If I fail to... Um, make anything clear, I'm happy to put as much work as I need to do to make it clear after class. Yes. Oh, you're welcome. So, well, I'll try to do more of that kind of stuff. Uh, <clears throat> let me close then in prayer, but for prayer, I would like to just read as a prayer for all of us the doxology at the end of the book of Jude, which is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. <clears throat> now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thank you, everybody.